Section three of Three Essays on Religion. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Three Essays on Religion by John Stuart Mill. Nature, Part three. But, it is said, all these things are for wise and good ends. On this I must first remark that whether they are so or not is altogether beside the point. Supposing it true that contrary to appearances these horrors, when perpetrated by nature, promote good ends, still as no one believes that good ends would be promoted by our following the example, the course of nature cannot be a proper model for us to imitate. Either it is right that we should kill, because nature kills, torture, because nature tortures, ruin and devastate because nature does the like or we ought not to consider at all what nature does but what it is good to do if there is such a thing as reductio ad absurdum this surely amounts to one if it is a sufficient reason for doing one thing that nature does it why not another thing if not all things why anything the physical government of the world being full of things which when done by men are deemed the greatest enormities it cannot be religious or moral in us to guide our actions by the analogy of the course of nature this proposition remains true whatever occult quality of producing good may reside in those facts of nature which to our perceptions are most noxious and which no one considers it other than a crime to produce artificially but in reality no one consistently believes in any such occult quality the phrases which ascribe perfection to the course of nature can only be considered as the exaggerations of poetic or devotional feeling not intended to stand the test of a sober examination no one either religious or irreligious believes that the hurtful agencies of nature considered as a whole promote good purposes in any other way than by inciting human rational creatures to rise up and struggle against them if we believed that those agencies were appointed by a benevolent providence as the means of accomplishing wise purposes which could not be compassed if they did not exist then everything done by mankind which tends to chain up these natural agencies or to restrict their mischievous operation from draining a pestilential marsh down to curing the toothache or putting up an umbrella ought to be accounted impious which assuredly nobody does account them notwithstanding an undercurrent of sentiment setting in that direction which is occasionally perceptible on the contrary the improvements on which the civilized part of mankind most pride themselves consist in more successfully warding off those natural calamities which if we really believe what most people profess to believe we should cherish as medicines provided for our earthly state of infinite wisdom inasmuch too as each generation greatly surpasses its predecessors in the amount of natural evil which it succeeds in averting our condition if the theory were true ought by this time to have become a terrible manifestation of some tremendous calamity against which the physical evils we have learnt to overmaster have previously operated as a preservative any one however who acted as if he supposed this to be the case would be more likely i think to be confined as a lunatic than reverenced as a saint it is undoubtedly a very common fact that good comes out of evil and when it does occur it is far too agreeable not to find people eager to delate on it but in the first place it is quite as often true of human crimes as of natural calamities the fire of london which is believed to have had so salutary an effect on the healthiness of the city 
would have produced that effect just as much if it had been really the work of the Pheropopisticus, so long commemorated on the monument. The deaths of those whom tyrants or persecutors have made martyrs in any noble cause have done a service to mankind which would not have been obtained if they had died by accident or disease. Yet whatever incidental and unexpected benefits may result from crimes, they are crimes nevertheless. In the second place, if good frequently comes out of evil, the converse fact, evil coming out of good, is equally common. Every event, public or private, which, regretted on its occurrence, was declared providential at a later period, on account of some unforeseen good consequences, might be matched by some other event, deemed fortunate at the time, but which proved calamitous or fatal to those whom it appeared to benefit. Such conflicts between the beginning and the end, or between the event and the expectation, are not only as frequent, but as often held up to notice, in the painful cases as in the agreeable. But there is not the same inclination to generalize on them, or at all events they are not regarded by the moderns, though they were by the ancients, as similarly an indication of the divine purposes. Men satisfy themselves with moralizing on the imperfect nature of our foresight, the uncertainty of events, and the vanity of human expectations. The simple fact is, human interests are so complicated, and the effects of any incident, whatever, so multitudinous, that if it touches mankind at all, its influence on them is, in the great majority of cases, both good and bad. If the greater number of personal misfortunes have their good side, hardly any good fortune ever befell any one which should not give either to the same or to some other person something to regret. And unhappily, there are many misfortunes so overwhelming that their favourable side, if it exists, is entirely overshadowed and made insignificant, while a corresponding statement can seldom be made concerning blessings. The effects, too, of every cause depend so much on the circumstances which accidentally accompany it, that many cases are sure to occur in which even the total result is markedly opposed to the predominant tendency, and thus not only evil has its good and good its evil side, but good often produces an overbalance of evil, and evil an overbalance of good. This, however, is by no means the general tendency of either phenomenon. On the contrary, both good and evil naturally tend to fructify, each in its own kind, good producing good, and evil evil. It is one of nature's general rules, and part of her habitual injustice, that to him that hath shall be given, but from him that hath not shall be taken even that which he hath. The ordinary and predominant tendency of good is towards more good. Health, strength, wealth, knowledge, virtue, are not only good in themselves, but facilitate and promote the acquisition of good, both of the same and of other kinds. The person who can learn easily is he who already knows much. It is the strong and not the sickly person who can do everything which most conduces to health. Those who find it easy to gain money are not the poor, but the rich, while health, strength, knowledge, talents, are all means of acquiring riches, and riches are often an indispensable means of acquiring these. Again, e converso, whatever may be said of evil turning into good, the general tendency of evil is towards further evil. Bodily illness renders the body more susceptible of disease. It produces incapacity of exertion, sometimes stability of the mind, and often the loss of means of subsistence. All severe pain, either bodily or mental, tends to increase the susceptibilities of pain forever after. Poverty is the parent of a thousand mental and moral evils. What is still worse, to be injured or oppressed, when habitual, lowers the whole tone of the character. One bad action leads to others, 
both in the agent himself in the bystanders and in the sufferers all bad qualities are strengthened by habit and all vices and follies tend to spread intellectual defects generate moral and moral intellectual and every intellectual or moral defect generates others and so on without end that much applauded class of authors the writers on natural theology have i venture to think entirely lost their way and missed the sole line of argument which could have made their speculations acceptable to any one who can perceive when two propositions contradict one another they have exhausted the sources of sophistry to make it appear that all the suffering in the world exists to prevent greater that misery exists for fear lest there should be misery a thesis which if ever so well maintained could only avail to explain and justify the works of limited beings compelled to labour under conditions independent of their own will but can have no application to a creator assumed to be omnipotent who if he bends to a supposed necessity himself makes the necessity which he bends to if the maker of the world can all that he will he wills misery and there is no escape from the conclusion the more consistent of those who have deemed themselves qualified to vindicate the ways of god to man have endeavoured to avoid the alternative by hardening their hearts and denying that misery is an evil the goodness of god they say does not consist in willing the happiness of his creatures but their virtue and the universe if not a happy is a just universe but waiving the objections to this scheme of ethics it does not at all get rid of the difficulty if the creator of mankind willed that they should all be virtuous his designs are as completely baffled as if he had willed that they should all be happy and the order of nature is constructed with even less regard to the requirements of justice than to those of benevolence if the law of all creation were justice and the creator omnipotent then in whatever amount suffering and happiness might be dispensed in the world each person's share of them would be exactly proportional to that person's good or evil deeds no human being would have a worse lot than another without worse deserts accident or favouritism would have no part in such a world but every human life would be playing out a drama constructed like a perfect moral tale no one is able to blind himself to the fact that the world we live in is totally different from this insomuch that the necessity of redressing the balance has been deemed one of the strongest arguments for another life after death which amounts to an admission that the order of things in this life is often an example of injustice not justice if it be said that god does not take sufficient account of pleasure and pain to make them the reward or punishment of the good or the wicked but the virtue is itself the greatest good and vice the greatest evil then these at least ought to be dispensed to all according to what they have done to deserve them instead of which every kind of moral depravity is entailed upon multitudes by the fatality of their birth through the fault of their parents of society or of uncontrollable circumstances certainly through no fault of their own not even on the most distorted and contracted theory of good which ever was framed by religious or philosophical fanaticism can the government of nature can be made to resemble the work of a being at once good and omnipotent the only admissible moral theory of creation is that the principle of good cannot at once and altogether subdue the powers of evil either physical or moral could not place mankind in a world free from the necessity of an incessant struggle with the maleficent powers or make them always victorious in that struggle but could and did make them capable of carrying on the fight with vigour and with progressively increasing success of all the religious explanations of the order of nature this alone is neither contradictory to itself nor to the facts for which it attempts to account 
according to it man's duty would consist not in simply taking care of his own interests by obeying irresistible power but in standing forward a not ineffectual auxiliary to a being of perfect beneficence a faith which seems much better adapted for nerving him to exertion than a vague and inconsistent reliance on an author of good who is supposed to be also the author of evil and i venture to assert that such has really been though often unconsciously the faith of all who have drawn strength and support of any worthy kind from trust in a superintending providence there is no subject on which men's practical belief is more incorrectly indicated by the words they use to express it than religion many have derived a base confidence from imagining themselves to be favourites of an omnipotent but capricious and despotic deity but those who have been strengthened in goodness by relying on the sympathizing support of a powerful and good governor of the world have i am satisfied never really believed that governor to be in the strict sense of the term omnipotent they have always served his goodness at the expense of his power they have believed perhaps that he could if he willed remove all the thorns from their individual path but not without causing greater harm to some one else or frustrating some purpose of greater importance to the general well-being they have believed that he could do any one thing but not any combination of things that his government like human government was a system of adjustments and compromises that the world is inevitably imperfect contrary to his intention footnote this irresistible conviction comes out in the writings of religious philosophers in exact proportion to the general clearness of their understanding it nowhere shines forth so distinctly as in leibniz's famous theodicy so strangely mistaken for a system of optimism and as such satirized by voltaire on grounds which do not even touch the author's argument leibniz does not maintain that this world is the best of all imaginable but only of all possible worlds which he argues it cannot but be inasmuch as god who is absolute goodness has chosen it and not another in every page of the work he tacitly assumes an abstract possibility and impossibility independent of the divine power and though his pious feelings may continue to designate that power by the word omnipotence he so explains that term as to make it mean power extending to all that is within the limits of that abstract possibility End footnote. and since the exertion of all power to make it as little imperfect as possible leaves it no better than it is they cannot but regard that power though vastly beyond human estimate yet as in itself not merely finite but extremely limited they are bound for example to suppose that the best he could do for his human creatures was to make an immense majority of all who have yet existed be born without any fault of their own patagonians or eskimo or something nearly as brutal and degraded but to give them capabilities which by being cultivated for very many centuries in toil and suffering and after many of the best specimens of the race have sacrificed their lives for the purpose have at last enabled some chosen portions of the species to grow into something better capable of being improved in centuries more into something really good of which hitherto there are only to be found individual instances it may be possible to believe with plato that perfect goodness limited and thwarted in every direction by the intractableness of the material has done this because it could do no better but that the same perfectly wise and good being had absolute power over the material and made it by voluntary choice what it is to admit this might have been supposed impossible to any one who had the simplest notion of moral good and evil nor can any such person whatever kind of religious phrases he may use fail to believe that if nature and man are both the works of a being of perfect goodness that being intended nature as a scheme to be amended 
not imitated by man but even though unable to believe that nature as a whole is a realization of the designs of perfect wisdom and benevolence men do not willingly renounce the idea that some part of nature at least must be intended as an exemplar or type that on some portion or other of the creator's works the image of the moral qualities which they are accustomed to ascribe to him must be impressed that if not all which is yet something which is must not only be a faultless model of what ought to be but must be intended to be our guide and standard in rectifying the rest it does not suffice them to believe that what tends to good is to be imitated and perfected and what tends to evil is to be corrected they are anxious for some more definite indication of the creator's designs and being persuaded that this must somewhere be met with in his works undertake the dangerous responsibility of picking and choosing among them in quest of it a choice which except so far as directed by the general maxim that he intends all the good and none of the evil must of necessity be perfectly arbitrary and if it leads to any conclusions other than such as can be deduced from that maxim must be exactly in that proportion pernicious it has never been settled by any accredited doctrine what particular department of the order of nature shall be reputed to be designed for our moral instruction and guidance and according to each person's individual predilections or momentary convenience have decided to what part of the divine government the practical conclusions that he was desirous of establishing should be recommended to approval as being analogous one such recommendation must be as fallacious as another for it is impossible to decide that certain of the creator's works are more truly expressions of his character than the rest and the only selection which does not lead to immoral results is the selection of those which most conduce to the general good in other words of those which point to an end which if the entire scheme is the expression of a single omnipotent and consistent will is evidently not the end intended by it there is however one particular element in the construction of the world which to minds on the lookout for special indication of the creator's wills has appeared not without plausibility peculiarly fitted to afford them viz the active impulses of humans and other animated beings one can imagine such persons arguing that when the author of nature only made circumstances he may not have meant to indicate the manner in which his rational creatures were to adjust themselves to those circumstances but that when he implanted positive stimuli in the creatures themselves stirring them up to a particular kind of action it is impossible to doubt that he intended that sort of action to be practised by them this reasoning followed out consistently would lead to the conclusion that the deity intended and approves whatever human beings do since all that they do being the consequences of some of the impulses with which their creator must have endowed them all must equally be considered as done in obedience to his will as this practical conclusion was shrunken from it was necessary to draw a distinction and to pronounce that not the whole but only parts of the active nature of mankind point to a special intention of the creator in respect to their conduct these parts it seemed natural to suppose must be those in which the creator's hand is manifested rather than man's own and hence the frequent antithesis between man as god made him and man as he has made himself since what is done with deliberation seems more the man's own act and he is held more completely responsible for it than for what he does from sudden impulse the considerate part of human conduct is apt to be set down as man's share in the business and the inconsiderate as god's the result is the vein of sentiment so common in the modern world though unknown to the philosophic ancients which exalts instinct at the expense of reason an aberration rendered still more mischievous by the opinion commonly held in conjunction with it that every or most every feeling or impulse which acts promptly without waiting to ask questions is an instinct 
thus almost every variety of unreflecting and uncalculating impulse receives a kind of consecration except those which though unreflecting at the moment owe their origin to previous habit of reflection these being evidently not instinctive do not meet with the favour accorded to the rest so that all unreflecting impulses are invested with authority over reason except the only ones which are most probably right i do not mean of course that this mode of judgment is even pretended to be consistently carried out life could not go on if it were not admitted that impulses must be controlled and that reason ought to govern our actions the pretension is not to drive reason from the helm instinct is not to govern but reason is to practise some vague and unassignable amount of deference to instinct though the impression in favour of instinct as being a peculiar manifestation of divine providence has not been cast into the form of a consistent general theory it remains a standing prejudice capable of being stirred up into hostility to reason in any case in which the dictate of rational faculty has not acquired the authority of prescription i shall not here enter into the difficult psychological question what are or are not instincts the subject will require a volume to itself without touching upon any disputed theoretical points it is possible to judge how little worthy is the instinctive part of human nature to be held up as its chief excellence as the part in which the hand of infinite goodness and wisdom is peculiarly visible allowing everything to be an instinct which anybody has ever asserted to be one it remains true that nearly every respectable attribute of humanity is the result not of instinct but of a victory over instinct and that there is hardly anything valuable in the natural man except capacities a whole world of possibilities all of them being dependent upon eminently artificial discipline for being realized it is only in a highly artificialized condition of human nature that the notion grew up or i believe ever could have grown up that goodness was natural because only after a long course of artificial education did good sentiments become so habitual and so predominant over bad as to arise unprompted when occasion called for them in the times when mankind was nearer to their natural state cultivated observers regarded the natural man as a sort of wild animal distinguished chiefly by being craftier than the other beasts of the field and all worth of character was deemed the result of a sort of taming a phrase often applied by the ancient philosophers to the appropriate discipline of human beings the truth is that there is hardly a single point of excellence belonging to human character which is not decidedly repugnant to the untutored feelings of human nature if there be a virtue which more than any other we expect to find and really do find in an uncivilized state it is the virtue of courage yet this is from first to last a victory achieved over one of the most powerful emotions of human nature if there is any one feeling or attribute more natural than all others to human beings it is fear and if no greater proof can be given of the power of artificial discipline than the conquest which it has at all times and places shown itself capable of achieving over so mighty and so universal a sentiment the widest difference no doubt exists between one human being and another in the facility or difficulty with which they acquire this virtue there is hardly any department of human excellence in which difference of original temperament goes so far but it may fairly be questioned if any human being is naturally courageous many are naturally pugnacious or rascable or enthusiastic and these passions when strongly excited may render them insensible to fear but take away the conflicting emotion and fear reasserts its dominion consistent courage is always the effect of cultivation the courage which is occasionally though by no means generally found among tribes of savages is as much the result of education as that of the spartans or romans in all such tribes there is a most emphatic direction of the public sentiment into every channel of expression through which honour can be paid to courage 
and cowardice held up to contempt and derision it will perhaps be said that as the expression of a sentiment implies the sentiment itself the training of the young to courage presupposes an originally courageous people it presupposes only what all good customs presuppose that they must have been individuals better than the rest who set the customs going some individuals who like other people had fears to conquer must have had strength of mind and will to conquer them for themselves these would obtain the influence belonging to heroes for that which is at once astonishing and obviously useful never fails to be admired and partly through this admiration and partly through the fear they themselves excite they would obtain the power of legislators and could establish whatever customs they pleased end of nature part three recording by sunny shields doha state of qatar april two thousand and twelve